Good morning. Whew. Okay, so we are at week seven. Great job. We've made it over halfway and we are coasting piano. Right? Yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> my name is Christy and I absolutely love sharing about God, about the Bible, and anything that has to do with that. I wanted to thank Rebecca for inviting me to come and share this week, and I wanted to kind of introduce myself a little more, and I, I was trying to think of ways, so I was thinking of how you might have seen me. So you might know me uh, walking into Veritas with a lot of kids, um, I have anywhere between seven and nine kids on most days because we love serving in the ministry of safe families for children. And so right now I have two extra, a little baby you've probably seen me with, and a two-year-old. So right now we have two extra. And most days you can find us uh, playing outside, having lots of kids around. We live out in North English. And so we have a small hobby farm, just a couple acres. So in the summer, if anyone would love to come over, maybe not everyone at once, but um, I would love to get to know you. Um, you can find us by a bonfire, over a barbecue. My husband loves to smoke meat a ton. And so if that's something that you would love to be around, um, we would love to get to know you or your family. One of the things that I love to talk about is the ways that God loves to be with us. And so we, I get to do the second week of the Tabernacle, and this is all about the outer court. Rebecca did an amazing job sharing with us about the inside of the Tabernacle last week. She had us look at several questions. The first question was, what problem does the Tabernacle solve? Then we looked about what does this tell us about God, and then about Jesus, and then we got to see how the gospel came through the tabernacle. We found that the design of the tabernacle was a way for God to draw near to Israel. That now that he has brought Israel out of Egypt, he now seems to be trying to get Egypt out of Israel. We learned last week through the questions that we just talked about that there was a blueprint for the tabernacle and also the outer court. That they all have divine arrows pointing us to our Father God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who are alive and active in us, helping take Egypt out of us and our Israelite friends. And hopefully showing us more about our Savior. Before we start going and walking around the tabernacle, I want to first take you to an iconic New Testament scene. It is found in Mark 11 and John 12, where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. All the people of the crowd around are laying down their, coat, their coats and palm leaves in front of Jesus. It seems to be fitting because we're almost to Easter, where we see Jesus on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he hears everyone shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he 
who came in the name of the Lord. Through putting the four gospel accounts together, we can put together what he did right after he entered. We find that he walks directly to the center of Jerusalem, where the temple was, and he walks into the outer court and just looks around. We find Jesus go out to Bethany for the night and return in the morning. But this time, we find him returning with righteous indignation. We find that he has a whip and that he, my page is out of work. We find that he has a whip and he is overturning tables in this outer court. He is, we find that merchants and money changers are inside the outer court. And we find him declaring that this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and instead it is a den of robbers. Here is Jesus standing in the outer court. A place that is supposed to be reserved for prayer and sacrifice and atonement. The merchants had moved their booths closer and closer to the temple that they actually moved inside the outer court. And they were keeping God's children from meeting with him. We can stand in awe watching Jesus cleanse the temple. And it helps us ask ourselves, what is so important about the outer court that made Jesus so furious? It is as though Jesus might be toppling tables in our own lives, toppling Egypt's that keep us from meeting with God. Let's find out what is so important about the outer court. I want to take you on a imaginary walkthrough of the outer court. Our homework this week did an amazing job taking us first to the bronze altar, then we looked at the orientation of the temple, tabernacle, the pure beaten olive oil, the census tax, the bronze basin, and the oil of incense. Let's start walking around together. First, let's walk up to the tabernacle. As you found in your homework, that the whole tabernacle is surrounded by fine white linen walls. Every side, except for the gate, is fine white linen. At the front, we found that there was a gate, an entrance gate woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, made of fine woolen, woven linen made by a weaver, and that it had four pillars across the front. And this was the only way into the tabernacle. Whether you were a priest or an Israelite, the only way in was through this gate. I hope that as we walk around, you can hear verses come to mind. For me, as I was looking at the gate, a verse from John 10 came to mind, where we find that Jesus is the door and the only way to salvation. The moment we walk across that gate, we're standing on holy ground. With our sacrifice on a leash, we bring our finest lamb and walk into the outer court. Immediately we see the bronze altar. 
It is huge. It's seven and a half foot square, seven and a half foot long, and four and a half foot tall with horns coming out from each corner. We saw a similar item inside of the tabernacle last week, the altar of incense, that was also looked like this. It was just a little smaller. This description is found in verses 1 through 8, and we find that it has a continual flame burning in burning sacrifices. If you can imagine yourself there, there would be noises all around you, the smell of burning flesh, burning sacrifices being consumed completely, animals falling, following others around and waiting in line to make a sacrifice. While you're standing in line, you know inside of yourself that your sins are not covered. If you died right then or that night, you have no guarantee that you would be with God. As it gets to be our turn, we walk up with our lamb, our very best lamb, and we lay our hand on its head, symbolizing the transfer of our sin to the lamb, and with our other hand, we slit its throat and spill its blood. For sin has to be covered with blood. And this is as far as we get to go. We don't get to walk past the bronze altar. We can only look longingly towards the tabernacle and know that that is where God is dwelling. But we don't get to go there. We have to leave. As for this moment, our sin is covered because we just made the sacrifice. But we will still have to come many, many more times throughout our life because sacrifices only cover sin that has been done. And we still live in our guilt and shame by what we've done. Ladies, I don't want you to miss what's happening here. I don't want you to miss just how horrible it would have been. The cost financially, spiritually, and mentally to sacrifice and then only get minimal relief. Imagine maybe not having enough money to provide for your sacrifice and go living knowing that your sin is covered. Maybe fearing the consequences of not meeting the things you're supposed to do, but also not being able to have a helper to help you meet the requirements of the law. Before we move on from this place, I want to look forward from where we're standing and look to the cross and remind ourselves that our spirit I want to remind your spirit and your heart and your mind that Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life to cover once and for all your past, your present, and your future sins. <coughs> in one of our questions this week, we saw that John the Baptist intentionally ties Jesus to this bronze altar we're talking about. He declares in John 1, 29, that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It seems that all those around Jesus 
might have missed something, but they would have known what a lamb was for. It was for sacrifice. To know how Jesus is different from the sacrifice, the sin offering we just talked about on the bronze altar, we need to look to Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 and remind ourselves that Jesus was not just a sacrifice. He was a superior sacrifice. Not only did it cover sin, it was a once and for all sacrifice. No more needed. It secures our eternal redemption, so where we're going, and this sacrifice is able to purify our consciences and take away guilt and shame and dead works forever. This sacrifice of Jesus makes a way for us not to have to come back over and over, but to simply trust that it's covered. Now, as our heart sits in this place, I want to shift to our text that brought us next to the pure beaten olive oil. At first I was taken aback because I was like, that's for inside the tabernacle. Rebecca was tabernacle inside, I was tabernacle outside. <laughs> but we found that the reason it was mentioned here is because they were getting instructions on how to maintain the tabernacle. We found that this pure beaten olive oil was to be placed inside the lampstand. It was an oil clear for light. Jen, if you listen to her teaching from this week, remarks that this oil would have burned virtually smokeless, which is quite amazing for, if you remember last week, the candles Stand never was put out. It was continually burning before the Lord day and night, and Aaron and his sons were to tend the lamp. We discovered in our homework from last week that the lampstand was Jesus. We found that the arrows were pointing us to Jesus, and this week we were wondering what the oil was. What was the arrow pointing us to? And we found that it was the Holy Spirit. You and I, at the moment of salvation, that moment when you invite Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, the Lord gives you a helper. The Holy Spirit moves inside of you, and you are no longer alone. If you remember, Jesus promised to help. A helper that would be so amazing that it would be better for him to leave so that the helper could come. I always find that amazing because I just imagine what it would be to be in the presence of Jesus and to know that the Holy Spirit, the gift we are given, is better than to be in person with Jesus for now. The imagery we get when the Holy Spirit comes on the believers on the day of Pentecost, we find in Acts 2-3, and it said that they saw tongues like flames of fire. 
that separated and came to rest on all the believers. Can you imagine what that looked like? As the Holy Spirit moved inside of them, our helper, the Holy Spirit, lit a flame, a continual flame. Have you ever thought that you have a flame that you might need to tend? Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, declares in Jesus' own words that you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure. I marked it as a bushel. If you remember this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But we put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are not left alone to meet the requirements. We are given the Holy Spirit, who is alive and active in and through you. He helps confront sin. He helps comfort you. He's called the Comforter. He has amazing attributes and is a part of the Godhead to minister to you and to continually transform you into who you are made to be. It is the Holy Spirit that works to get Egypt out of us so that we can mirror Jesus. So how do we tend our lamps? Just like Aaron and his sons, tending the lamps morning and evening, we find our answer. When we commune with God, with the Holy Spirit, we are tending our lamps. And we live and move and breathe in direct relationship with God. For me, I'll give you an example. For me, when I am feeling down or broken, I start to journal and talk with God. It's not like, dear diary. <laughs> it is more like, Lord, and just writing out my struggles, my questions, my thoughts. I write out scripture when I can't think of anything else to do. Sometimes I write full chapters, full books of the Bible out. I have journals all over of just scripture. And I worship in the dark while my family sleeps. And I cry out to God and ask him to show me his perspective on what I'm going through. One specific night I will share with you. One night, the Lord laid my oldest sons, who is adopted, his birth mom on my heart. I was so torn by his circumstances. He was so little, only three months old when we got him. All that he went through and had to go through, it all was on my heart, and I didn't know how to process it or how to interact with her or even how to think about all of it. She had reached out to me on several of her sober days, and one night I just poured my heart out to the Lord because I just didn't know what to do. 
And he whispered to my heart in the middle of my brokenness. And he said, I have called you my child. As much as I love you, I love her. I long to restore her past and establish her future. Tell her that I love her, that I long to heal her heart, that from the foundation of the earth, I saw her and was stirred to compassion over her. Tell her I have established her children and called them to myself that her struggles and prayers are what I am using for her to walk towards me. I ask you to meet with her and tell her about my love towards her. I have called her with an everlasting love. I will never give her up. Tell her of my love and my forgiveness. Tell her I am her redeemer that I died for her sins and I rose from the dead to bring her close to me. Tell her, my child, see her, hear her, tell her that you love her and thank her for blessed is the womb who gave you your son. So I did. I asked her to coffee And I told her that the Lord had showed me how he sees her. And I literally sat in front of her and read it to her. She has asked me for it several times over the years. He's 10 now, and I have sporadic conversations with her. And she asked me, please send me that thing you told me that God thinks about me. And so I do. And I tell her that I love her and that she is very important to us. And he placed inside of me in that moment a love that I cannot explain to you for her. At one time when we were still living in California, she had overdosed really bad to the point where her whole body shut down except for her brain and her heart and her lungs. And she was in the hospital and her mom texted me out of nowhere and told me about it. And she's, her mom wanted me to go and see her. And I was like, okay. And so she was in the ICU for almost a month. And I went there several times and just prayed over her and spoke life over her and told her once again how much God loves her. It is only God that can do that in me because I cannot muster that myself. I could not create a love inside myself for this woman. But I stood beside her bed and helped change her dressings and helped pray over her. And she told me later that inside her coma, she heard me pray. Because all she wanted to do was die. And she heard me say, I speak life over you.
It's always hard to transition off of the story like this is like census taxes here. <laughs> well, it is tax season, so maybe you can, you know, come with me a little bit. And I kind of, when we got to this place in, in my studying and in the homework, I was like, census tax? kind of interesting. I was like, Outerport, what's the census tax doing here? But I found something amazing tucked inside the census tax. We find our Israelites being asked to make ransom for their life to the Lord. We learned that each was to give the same amount and that it served as a reminder once again, 50 days out of slavery, that no matter what your status or your position, that you were equal before the Lord. Which ties me back to what I shared before. There is no difference before the Lord between me and the birth mom of my son. He loves us the same. It seemed to remind our Israelites' friends of their own ransom. If you remember, when they were coming out of Egypt, at the last plague, they had to put blood on their doorposts, symbolizing a covering for the firstborn sons that resided on the inside. It seems to remind them of the Passover, when the angel of death passed through the camp or the villages and was able to pass over the firstborn because he had been atoned for. Now, inside the census tax, every single person age 20 or older had to pay this tax. So not just the firstborn now, everyone was required to remember. It said it would serve as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. So 50 days out, he's saying, remember what I did for you. You might be wondering what this could possibly do with you. I know I was. Well, in our homework, Jen did a wonderful job of leading us to 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, where we learned that we were ransomed by his precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Wow, doesn't that bring you right back into our outer court, standing in front of the bronze altar? So as we look at the bronze altar, our hearts see the cross. It points to. The next thing our text brought us to was the bronze basin. This is found in Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21. As we answered questions on day four, we learned something interesting, that the bronze basin held water for the priests who would walk with it before actually entering the tabernacle. And when they washed, we found that they could see themselves in mirrors. 
that there was mirrors all around the bronze basin. And we were asked the question that what do we think this is a shadow of? And we looked at verses and wondered if it might point to baptism or being washed thoroughly from our iniquities or verse after verse spoke of being cleansed, washed with the water of the word, being cleansed to be a vessel of honor and prepared for good work. Then we landed on repentance, being cleansed and the work of the Holy Spirit who is alive and active walking you down the path to sanctification, which is a fancy word for being made holy. Just as the priests washed before, all over, before they entered, we must be purified. But what about those mirrors? What could they be? After studying every single verse on mirrors in the Bible, there are eight, if you're wondering, I found amazing things that pointed to cleansing, sanctification, and reflecting our Savior. So through repentance and his sacrifice, we are cleansed and we get to reflect our Savior. Most of all, I found significance that the bronze basin was the last thing that the priest had to pass by before they entered the tabernacle. Before entering God's presence, one must be cleansed. So what and who might be our bronze basin? And we find Jesus once again. The mirror of God himself came to earth where heaven and earth met in one man. As the mirror of God, so his people, you and me, could be cleansed for all of our sins. This God-man, his blood shed on the cross. We no longer clean ourselves. We no longer need to be covered with the blood of sacrifices because Jesus provided purification for sins. <laughs> Hebrews 1.3 says, Now we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, being acceptable and spiritually cleansed. Wow. I hope you're catching that each time we see something in this outer court, we have arrows and full portraits of God's plan to draw near to you. Not just cover our sin, but pull us in close and have a relationship and to be fully known. On the last day of our homework, it talked about the oil and incense. Rebecca did a great job last week sharing about the altar of incense that is placed right in front of the Holy of Holies. This week our text had us look at the ingredients and we noted with detailed specificity how it was to be made and used. And we found that it was placed right before the testimony 
of the tent of meeting where God said he would meet with them. When I was reading about the oil and incense, it took me to a class I got to do in my undergraduate work where I got to actually go to Israel for a month and study. And it was amazing. If you ever get a chance, I highly recommend it. Because what we got to do is we got to learn about something and then go there. And just a side note, when uh, Moses is going up and down Mount Sinai, I barely made it one time. So. I also think that he had miraculous strength. Um, just so you know. And I took a camel halfway up, so I don't know. I don't know how he did it, because he was old, right? But back to oil and incense. Um, when you walk into any place that is a holy place in Israel, there is, you walk in and you hit this, this wall of incense that transports you back in time to what they're showing you from biblical times. Whether it um, is uh, one church I really liked, uh, and there's always like two places in Israel that they believe are like, no, this is where Jesus was buried. No, this is where Jesus was buried. So there's like two of everything, so you really don't know sometimes. Um, but the point is, is that in man's ability, they're trying to create something to bring you to worship. So one of my favorite places was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it is supposed to be where he was laid to rest, and a place that also honors where the cross might have been placed. And the incense in that place was so amazing that just thinking about it, I can be transformed, transform, I can be taken there, transported there, and remember what it felt like to be on my knees and for the first time weep over my own salvation and really, for the first time, understand what that was like for me to interact with him dying for my sins and just weep. So how do we go from here? So we covered all the pieces in the outer court. So let's try to stand back, not just outside the tabernacle, or even at the beginning of our Exodus story. Let's go all the way back to Eden. If you remember, where Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden eastward, and cherubim with flaming swords stood guard so that they might not go back in and live forever in their sinful state. Now, here in Exodus, God tells Moses to build him a sanctuary, and Israel is invited back to a gate facing eastward. Not with cherubim guarding it, but a gate that you may enter with the sacrifice. Now, they could find covering for their sin because God wanted to draw near to them. At first glance, last week we learned so many powerful arrows inside the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, all pointing to Jesus. We found that the author of Hebrews makes a direct correlation between Christ 
and the tabernacle, and which that's found in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, which shows us that we can make direct connections, knowing that the important tabernacle holds vital keys for our own freedom. It's not just an Old Testament passage. It has to do with our freedom today. As we walk farther along Israel's history and we get to King David and his son Solomon, we find that Solomon got to build a temple, not just a tent, but now a house for God. Similar to the tabernacle in many ways, sin still had to be covered with sacrifice. And it was a place for worship, prayer, and the presence of God. Moving now in Jesus' lifetime, and we find that he's at the temple at age 12, if you remember that story when his parents lost him. Uh, I'm always encouraged by this story. Uh, I haven't lost a kid yet, but I hope it never happened. And so we find him at age 12 in the temple, and in his ministry as an adult, in those three years of his adult service, we find an iconic scene where Jesus walks into the temple and reads Isaiah. If you remember this passage, it is the start of his public ministry where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we also find him toppling tables in the outer court when anything gets in the way of God's people meeting with him. Let's just move a little bit more through time. At the last bit of Jesus' ministry, we find the day of Passover. That morning, the priest hurriedly prepared the morning sacrifice, the Passover lamb, in the temple. At that very moment, we find Jesus, our Passover lamb, hanging on a cross. Jesus, the perfect embodied temple, bridging the gap between us and a holy God. Then, that evening, at the time of the evening sacrifice in the temple, it's still dark over the city. With his last breath, Jesus shouted, it is finished. And that moment, the ground began to shake. Those temple priests preparing the evening sacrifice looked up with astonishment to see that the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies tore from top to bottom. For the first time, the Ark of the Covenant was exposed for all to see. Dear sisters, it is with Jesus' great sacrifice that you and I now get to walk past that bronze altar and approach God's throne. I ask that in response inside of you, that you stand metaphorically as fellow temples. So he moved from walking with them in the garden to tabernacle, to temple, to Jesus, 
to you. You are a temple. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit himself and stand on the promises of God. That God is the one who parts our seas. That with one word, he can cause storms to stop. That merely shifting your gaze to Jesus can help you walk on top of things that used to sink you. That as a woman of God, covered in his righteousness, bought with the cost of his blood, daughter of Christ, I summon you to rise. Don your armor of God and walk in full acknowledgement of who you are in Christ. Tend your lamps morning and evening. Visit the armory of God and put on the armor of God. And stand arm in arm with other fellow believers and declare the goodness of the Lord in the land of the Because Isaiah 53, 5 says, we become light in the darkness. Let's pray. Dear God, I invite you to topple my tables of anything in me that gets in the way of meeting with you. Lord, we offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving for you are holy and righteous. It is by your blood that we are set free. Teach us to walk in this freedom, how to tend our lambs, to meet with you daily. Thank you for your spirit and that we are never alone. Thank you that you are bringing us towards holiness through the authority of the blood of Jesus. Name, amen.